What's up, Kinfolk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we got to do my week eight USFL power rankings. Birmingham fans are probably going to get angry. Memphis Showboats fans are going to be like, you get a chance to prove it in week 10. And we're also going to get to talk about Elite 11 finals, or at least talk about advancing, previewing Elite 11 finals, which takes place June 14th and June 16th this year. But first, yo, a uh, bit of a scoop for you mans over here, because over the weekend, I learned that Mike Leach's Hall of Fame candidacy is going to be discussed by the College Football Hall of Fame and the folks that are responsible for governing the College Football Hall of Fame induction process. That is the National Football Foundation. Full disclosure to you, I vote in the National Football Foundation's Super 16 poll the last year and going into this year. Uh, grateful to be a part of it. And you'll also know that the history of this game is very, very important to me. As a matter of fact, it's a theme of the show. And one of the things that we try to lean into because you like to hear me talk about it. So let's lean into it. So over the weekend, we learned, uh, or not even over the weekend, on Monday, we learned that the 2024 class will be loaded because it turns out there are a lot of great players and great close, uh, coaches in the College Football Hall of Fame, well, selection process. Because what's wild about this is this year alone, there are over 200 players that are up for selection. And there are, I think, over 40 coaches that are up for selection. And that's no easy feat, right? Because to be up for selection for, say, Mike Leach and, you know, head coach, there's a number of things you got to do first. So the first one that you have to do to be even up for nomination, this is to say a coach, an SID, sports information director, athletic director of uh, communications, needs to put you up, needs to say to the College Football Hall of Fame and the National Football Foundation, we believe this person is worthy of being a Hall of Famer. Now, does do they meet the threshold for induction, right? So for the coaches, that means that you have to have won 60% of your games, been a head coach for 10 years. And then if you are under or if you're under the age of 75, you have to wait three years before you can be eligible for the Hall of Fame. Right. Now, in the case of Mike Leach, kind of getting hairy because when Mike Leach passed away in December, he had been a head coach for 10 years. And he would have had to wait, still has to wait the three years to be eligible for induction because he wasn't. 75 at the time of his passing but the one that really got underneath my skin and the one that frankly got a lot of folks going was when I learned that 60 percent was the threshold for even being up for nomination and Mike Leach has won 59.6 percent of the games he's head coach this is at Texas Tech this is at Washington State this is Mississippi State and there are lots of different ways to go at this right what happens if you give them a couple more years what happens if uh, you take away last year, all these things come into play. But I went ahead and did some reporting, and I learned that Mike Leach in particular is going to be discussed because the National Football Foundation and the College Football Hall of Fame recognize that Mike Leach is exactly what the sport is about. We love that man. I personally love that man. And I think the quote that I have in our story at foxsports.com goes like this, despite being one of the most intelligent and entertaining coaches in the sport with a winning percentage that's bowl game eligible, 59.6, 60%, six games, Leach is not eligible to be nominated for the hall under current rules. But the National Football Foundation oversees the hall, 
and is taking a look at its rules, specifically the one that might prevent Leach from reaching the ballot at all. And then a source told me there are meetings coming up where the issue of Mike Leach will be discussed. This also reminds me how much I love a teleprompter because I'm a much better writer, guys. It just happens to be that you want to hear me talking about this stuff off the cuff and going down the rundown. All that to say, I think they're going to make way for others to jump on board with Mike Leach getting into the Hall of Fame when it's time for him to be eligible in three years. I mean, Archie Manning even talked to Sports Illustrated about how there needs to be a special dispensation for Mike Leach because he is Mike Leach and all those things that that entails. For me personally, Mike Leach didn't know me from Adam and did me the kindness of extending me an interview right after Alex Grinch became the defense coordinator at OU and I was doing a YouTube show out of a corner of my bedroom that still has the bathroom sink in it, okay? I was in an efficiency apartment doing that show. And Mike Leach was on vacation in Key West. And he took 15 minutes to talk to me about Alex Grinch and hopping hens and just what kind of basketball players these hens could be. It's one of my favorite interviews of all time. It also was one of the first times that someone had been kind to me in this space when I really was looking for a win. And those sorts of kindnesses don't often happen. They're, they're few and far between. So you remember them and they imprint upon you when they do happen. And not, not to say that, you know, Mike Leach was also a great offensive coordinator at Oklahoma before he was head coach at Texas Tech. This also gets into a larger point that, well, I pick a fight with the National Football Foundation and the College Football Hall of Fame for how it goes about nominating players that might be eligible for selection in the College Football Hall of Fame. So I mentioned there's a high threshold to meet for coaches. For players, it's much the same. For players to be eligible for even nomination for the College Football Hall of Fame, they have to have been an All-American as nominated or as assigned by one of the NCAA selectors, which include, among others, the Associated Press, the AFCA, uh, the Sporting News, and I believe uh, the Football Writers Association, and I'm missing one, I'm sure off the top of my head, but... If you haven't been named an All-American by one of those five, then they just don't count you as being a first-team All-American. That's the point. You got to be a first-team All-American. And this first came to me when I was discussing Chuck Ely. Chuck Ely was a quarterback at Toledo in the late 60s, early 70s. And he was undefeated as a starter in three years at Toledo. And he's one of the best quarterbacks to ever play in the Canadian Football League. But he was not in the College Football Hall of Fame. And I want to know why. Turns out he was a first-team All-American by the football news. But the football news was not one of the NCAA selectors. So the College Football Hall of Fame and National Football Foundation did not count it. And you also get a finite amount of time to get in on the regular ballot. Which, again, I say has over 200 people on it. We're talking about close to 250 people, including coaches on this thing. So that means that... You have 50 years on that ballot before they just take you off. And because Ely had played more than 50 years ago, he was going to be taken off of the ballot. He wasn't going to get in in the first place, right? And then he was never on it to begin with because football news and first team All-American. Well, the Veterans Committee at the National Football Foundation and for the College Football Hall of Fame has discretion to look past those 50 years to see if there have been any oversights. And it turned out that the year after I wrote about and talked about right here on this show that you listened to, what Chuck Ely had done and what his Hall of Fame resume looks like, he was selected for the College Football Hall of Fame. And 
I got the privilege of hearing him call me to tell me thank you for taking on his story, which is, again, it's one of the reasons that you do this job. It's one of the reasons why journalism matters, right? Every now and again, you get to do some good and you get to lift up a story that is meaningful. And I'm the kind of person that really does lean into the history and the understanding of a place like the College Football Hall of Fame, which ain't for players as much as we want it to be, right? I want to see Chuck Ely get inducted while he's still alive so he can get his flowers because that's important to me. But it's also important to me that the College Football Hall of Fame is a reflection of us, just like language is, right? On fleek makes it into the dictionary because enough people say on fleek, right? Which is another way, uh, way of saying stylish and perfect. But if it is not going to be a reflection of us, then what is a reflection of? Because frankly, there have been over 5.6 million people that have played college football. And just over a thousand of them are in the College Football Hall of Fame. But there are quite literally hundreds of millions of people that are college football fans. And we are the people that are going to enter the College Football Hall of Fame, look and gawk and say, oh my God, that's what it's for. So to leave out a guy like Mike Leach doesn't feel right. But I'll give you another example of how this goes when we're not talking about Chuck Ely. Talk about Trevor Lawrence, somebody that you know very well. So Trevor Lawrence was only a first-team All-American one time while he was at Clemson. And it was the very last year he played football at Clemson. That's also the year where Matt Jones was the guy for the first-team All-American for nearly everybody else but the Football Writers Association, which is another way of saying the Football Writers Association was paying attention. And I, again, full disclosure, I'm a member which is to say that they knew that if they didn't make Trevor Lawrence a first-team All-American, that we would not be able to talk about Trevor Lawrence being on the ballot to get into the College Football Hall of Fame. That means the guy that was first to lead his program to a 15-0 record and a national championship in the college football playoff era. The guy that became the first true freshman since Jamel Holloway in 1985 to lead his team to a national championship and one of the best quarterbacks of the last decade would not even be on the ballot for the College Football Hall of Fame because he happened to play when Kyler Murray was the best quarterback in college football in 2018, right? 2019 is Joe Burrow and 2020 is Mac Jones. We have reached a point where, yes, we might have more first-team All-Americans than we got slots for first-team All-Americans. So I think it's a stupid rule. I understand why they make that the threshold because then everybody is going to try to put up their person for the College Football Hall of Fame. But frankly, that's your job when you are governing who gets to be nominated and who gets to be selected. So if you get hundreds of thousands of applications and you still can miss on guys like Mike Leach and Trevor Lawrence, I don't know what to tell you, right? I'm sure that I'm also raising an alarm that some people at the National Football Foundation know about, but I'm sure you didn't, right? Because it only matters that you see these guys are nominated and you see what I see. Everybody on the list can go. Everybody on the list was a superhero at their respective program in school, right? I really love that. It was another opportunity for me to just, once again, remind people that Mike Leach, one of a kind and unique, and that there are enough people that would like to see him in the College Football Hall of Fame that four-tenths ain't really going to be what gets him out. All right, let's go from that subject to the subject of the future of college football, and that is Elite 11 Finals, right? So check this out. I always answer this question because I don't assume that you who are listening to the show and may have been listening to me for years know exactly what Elite 11 is. So let's start with that, right? 
What is Elite 11? It is, well, Elite 11 Academy is an $800 three-day camp for quarterbacks, right? But Elite 11 Finals is a national competition that starts with regionals that costs, you know, 50 bucks to enter. And then if you are selected as one of the better quarterbacks at that regional, they invite you to what is called Elite 11 Finals, right? And Elite 11 Finals is what we're talking about now. It's usually where the top five-star, four-star, and even three-star quarterbacks culminate together to go through a set of drills and exercises uh, overseen lately by Trent Dilfer, where they try to evaluate which one of these guys is the best quarterback, according to their curriculum and their uh, rubric, in their respective class. It's almost only restricted to rising seniors, which is why the class of 2024 is the one that we are talking about right now, right? Those guys are going to go into their senior years, and this can make or break many careers. C.J. Stroud is a great example of this, and you've heard me tell the story, but I'm going to tell it again for context. Stroud was not getting a lot of offers before he decided to participate in Elite 11's regionals. He was ranked just outside the top 800 prospects in the country. He goes through regionals. He goes to Elite 11 finals. He beats out Bryce Young for Elite 11 MVP, and not long after that, he got an offer from Ryan Day and Ohio State. He vaulted pretty, uh, just for a short period into five-star status and then eventually into the top 50, and you know what that is. He's number two overall pick in this year's NFL draft. But the next question to answer is, is Elite 11 a good predictor of success? And the short answer is yes, but I want to go at that because Elite 11 finals, you get there, probably going to be good. But if you win Elite 11 MVP, it's kind of hit or miss. So I'm going to use an example because we have 24 years of data to pull from here because Elite 11 has been going on since 1999. Okay, so from 1999 to 2009, here's the list of guys that won Elite 11 MVP. Okay, the best quarterback in their respective class. Brock Berlin, Brody Croyle, Ben Olsen, Kyle Wright, Rhett Bomar, Mark Sanchez, Matthew Stafford, John Brantley, Blaine Gabbert, Aaron Murray, and Jake Heaps. Now, some of y'all are younger, so you're like, RJ, I don't know half these dudes. And some of y'all are older, and you forgot these dudes play quarterback. All right? Those were the best, as evaluated by Elite 11 and who they decided to make MVP. Now, here's the list of guys over that same 10-year span that didn't win Elite 11 MVP, but participated in Elite 11 finals. Devin Gardner, A.J. McCarron, Andrew Luck, Tim Tebow, Jake Locker, Chris Leak, Dennis Dixon, Matt Leinart, Troy Smith, and Vince Young. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you that they've gotten a little bit better over the last several years in how they evaluate who wins an Elite 11 MVP, but let me put it this way. These are guys that have been in Elite 11 finals classes over the last five years. C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, J.J. McCarthy, and Caleb Williams. Only two of those guys won Elite 11 MVP. Now, CJ and Bryce were in the same class. Only one of those guys can win, but you get my point here. Don't so much focus on which one of these guys is going to walk away with the trophy, unless you're me and you're an Oklahoma fan, you want to remind people that Jackson Arnold won Elite 11 MVP. You could also be me and say Spencer Rattler won Elite 11 MVP, right? I also want you to focus on who gets invited, because if you have a quarterback that is committed to your favorite program that got invited, chances are that dude's good, but also... 
You knew that before, right? So right now we're talking about watching these guys go at each other and seeing them all in the same setting and how they react to each other and how they will go on seven, seven on seven when they participate in the opening two. And that's more what I want to talk about. So we're going to go down a list of guys that I think you know and guys that I think you should know who are candidates for Elite 11 MVP because they will participate in Elite 11 finals. So number one off the rip, Georgia commit Dylan Rayola. Also, is that dude, right? If you're looking up the guy that's got the most tools and the most to work with, that's why he's the number one overall recruit in the class of 2024. Last year, he threw for 3,341 yards, 32 TDs, with 12 games as a sophomore, right, at Burleson in high school. And then, in 20, excuse me, that was 2021. In 2022, when he transferred to Chandler, he threw for 2,400 in 2022. But you get it, right? Or I should say 22 touchdowns, not 2022. But the, the genes are also there, right? Dominic Rayola was an all-world center at Nebraska, won the Remington Award. Great football genes. You understand what it is. I think that that's the guy that many people think might win it because number one and five-star are next to his name. But I would not be surprised to find out that one of these other guys blows away the Elite 11 staff because, again, Dylan is not the only guy here that can sling it. Another dude that can sling it, Alabama commit, Julian Sayan, who in 2021 completed 181, 253 passes for 2,769 yards, 34 TDs, five interceptions, came back with basically the same sort of statistics in 2022. But my take here is that Greg Biggins, who I trust to evaluate high school football talent in California more than I trust anybody else, he's also a great analyst at 247 Sports, thinks that Sayan is the most ready to play right away when he gets to campus. And that's that's high praise. I mean, Greg was way ahead on guys like Bryce Young, like guys like DJ Uwe Unglele. If he says that a guy can play, I'm inclined to go with him. Also, Crunchyroll, am I going to have to be the dude asking you why this man doesn't already have an NIL deal from you? Do I, do I, do I need to call you out? Do I need to pull you on Front Street right now? Do I need to be the dude that is looking around going, why aren't there any Vegeta references from a man? Why aren't there any Brawley references for my man? Why aren't there any Kamehameha references for my man? Why do we got to be this far into this before I'm the dude out here talking about we have a quarterback whose last name is saying, as in, yes, Goku, who's a punk, but Goku, right? Gohan, you know what I'm saying? Like, all right, uh, get this man a Boma at Alabama. And let's get it on. I'm so excited about this. We gotta, I get to do I go to this dude place for five years because I am going to load you up with all the references. It's gonna be over 9,000 every single time this dude goes for the UAP. I'm here for it. Next on the list, let's talk about Florida commit DJ Lagway coming out of Texas. His father is John Derek Lagway, who played running back at Baylor. From 97 to 01, coaches uh, played for coaches Dave Roberts and Kevin Steele, who's defensive coordinator now at Alabama. Kevin Steele just be getting in, man. That's a dude that's going to be coaching football somewhere, somehow, all the time. DJ's also a dude that had to grow into a new system and prove, frankly, what other quarterbacks are already going to have to prove, which is that you can come into a new system, learn it, and then execute it. Last year, he completed 67% of his passes after completing just 55% the year before. He's committed to Florida, and I expect Billy Napier is going to be able to do some nice things with him. 
Michigan got their dude earlier this year in Jaden Davis coming out of North Carolina Providence Day School, 12-1 and record, over 3,400 yards passing, 43 TDs. He's a dude, right? They avenged their only loss earlier in the year in the state championship when they beat Charlotte Christian 55-13. to Michigan feels good about their quarterback recruiting. I mean, when have we been able to say that outside of J.J. McCarthy and feel like it's going to stick? That's great. That's great news for you. Aaron Nolan committed to Ohio State. He set records in Georgia last year. He had over 4,000 yards passing with 55 scores, completed 73% of his passes, coming out of Langston Hughes, which is a 6A school in Georgia, and Georgia takes its high school football seriously. I also would point out that his offense set the record for most points scored in a season by a high school team with 792. Means they're out there operating like Art Browse's Baylor to give you more of some context as to what Aaron Nolan could bring to a place like Ohio State. Notre Dame has committed C.J. Carr. Yeah, if that name sounds familiar, it's because it should. Threw for 2,600 yards, 28 TDs, 4 INTs last year in Detroit. But, I mean, we're talking about a dude from, from a football family and boy, howdy. All right, let me, let me make sure I get all of this in. His granddaddy, on his daddy's side, is Lloyd Carr who you'll know, right, Coach Michigan from 1995-2007, put together a record of 122-40 and and won the 97 National Championship. Also, Charles Woodson, that's his. Like, he he gets to be like, yeah, I'm the dude that gave you Charles Woodson going both ways. You are welcome, RJ. Then on his maternal side, his granddaddy, Tom Curtis, was an All-American, and he is in the College Football Hall of Fame as a safety at Michigan. His daddy, Jason, went to Michigan. His mama went to Michigan. And he committed to Notre Dame. So I can't wait to see how this goes, right? Like, because I'm sure that there were a lot of people that thought we ain't got to worry about no Jane Davis because we're going to get Lloyd Carr's grandson to come sling it for Jim Harbaugh. And he said, actually, I would like to go to South Bend. And I can't think of a more Fitting rivalry than Notre Dame. I don't know any Notre Dame fans that don't hate Michigan. And I don't know any Michigan fans that don't hate Notre Dame. So the idea of CJ Carr, who is by rights a Michigan man, said, nah, I want to be part of this fighting Irish thing. I am here for it. I can't wait to see this man playing football. Then at the school that I follow the most, Oklahoma commit Michael Hawkins is junior, I should say. Michael Hawkins Jr. is also going to the Elite 11 Finals. He is the second QB that Jeff Levy has brought in behind Jackson Arnold. The reason I bring that up is not just because this is due following Jackson Arnold uh, next year, but because Jackson Arnold, Denton Geyer, gave the Allen Eagles, quarterback by Michael Hawkins Jr., the business. Denton Geyer beat that team 49-7. to But if there's anything that I could say that's kind about Michael Hawkins Jr. outside of he can sling it, it's that he has been met with a level of adversity that should never find a high school kid. It, it should not happen. So while he was playing quarterback at Allen, his parents' home was vandalized with a racial epithet, and he was forced to transfer to Frisco Emerson because he didn't feel safe anymore. So that's a guy that had been ninth on the depth chart at Allen, fought his way to starter, came home to find that epithet after, I think, beating Louisville last year in the playoffs, and has to leave the place that gave us Kyler Murray because people don't know how to act. Ends up at Frisco Emerson, where I expect he'll have a great year this year. But I'm excited to see what he does at Elite 11 Finals. If for no other reason, then 
I know that dude ain't shook because that would be enough for me to just say, I don't think I want to play football much longer if this is what it's going to be like in my community. And his father, Michael Hawkins Sr., also defensive back at Oklahoma, drafted 2005 to the Green Bay Packers, same draft they got Aaron Rodgers in, just to give you a bit of perspective. It's like, nah, I don't think we're going out like that. I'm going to protect my son. I'm going to protect my family, but we're going to play football because he has been a part of helping raise what I think is a really talented quarterback. Next on the list is Nebraska commit Daniel Kalen, who I thought might be a dude, but only after he received an offer from Colorado in January. Again, I know y'all feel some kind of way about Colorado because Deion Sanders is there, but Deion Sanders has been very, very good at identifying who the starting quarterback should be for him. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But suffice it to say that if Deion Sanders has decided to offer you a quarterback, your kid can sling it because his kid can sling it. And because Deion came up as an offensive coordinator at Trinity. People forget that. People also forget that Deion has been coaching football since his kids were six and seven years old. And he started doing it because he didn't trust other coaches to do it right. So we're talking about a man that's coming up on damn near 20 years of having coached football, and y'all want to act brand new about it. But he's going to Nebraska, and that was a really big win for Marcus Satterfield and Matt Rule, not just because he was also getting recruited by Colorado, but because Dylan Rayola had committed to Georgia and Daniel Kalen came in later in the week and said, no, nah, I'll go to Nebraska. I'll stay home. It's cool. Let's see if we can't run it. I think that I could be a fit for the offense and what they want to do, threw for 3,186 yards, 36 TDs, seven picks as a junior. And I think that that means, yeah, Nebraska might be about it. If not this year, then in a couple of years, and I want Nebraska to be good. I like it when Nebraska good, just like I like it when Arkansas is good. Football's just better when those two programs where the pro team in the state is on 11. I, I love that stuff. All right. Let's do my week eight USFL power rankings. All right. I want you to start it with this. The South is 13 and three against the North. All those jokes that I want to make about the South that I know you made about the South, but you can't because you ain't got this microphone and you ain't on the Twitters, but you can't get fired. Like I can get fired. I'm not going to make them. Just know that I made them too. Okay. That also means that nobody is clinched with two weeks left in the season, any of the four playoff spots, which is remarkable. It speaks to the parity in the league. It speaks to how much stronger the league is in year two as opposed to year one when it felt like we had the playoffs pretty much sorted out after week six. Now you got to play for everything. And a lot of that is because the team at number one has been doing a damn thing. Memphis Showboats, they are five and three after starting the season over. They have won five consecutive games. They beat New Jersey 25-16 to 16 at Pro Football Hall of Fame Stadium. They got a 100-yard rushing effort from Kareth White, who had rushed for all of 174 yards in the previous seven weeks. And Carnell Lake's defense has been outstanding. They lead the leagues in INTs with 11 in eight games. And I think one of the things that you're going to focus on if you're watching the USFL is that Memphis is great when it comes to turnover margin. They are number one in the league at plus five. And that is the reason why they have been able to reel off five in a row while the offense is kind of sticking and starting. The defense and special teams have been coming through for Todd Haley. Number two, I got the Birmingham Stallions who have a better record than the Memphis Showboats and even beat the Memphis Showboats 42 to two. But that was then. This is now. Memphis is a different team, just like Birmingham 
is a different team. They are a different team in that I think they got the MVP at quarterback, right? I got to see Alex Magoo up close in Birmingham over the weekend, 24-35 for 333 passing yards with three TDs in that win against the Philadelphia Stars, 27-24. I also think I need to say this, right? That's the kind of game that I watched the Birmingham Stallions lose earlier in the year. They lost it to the New Orleans Breakers. They had the ball. They had an opportunity to go down and score, okay? They were down four with under three minutes left to go in the fourth quarter when Skip Holtz and Alex Magoo said, no, nah, we ain't going out like that. They got money on fourth and eight, and then they were able to cap that off with the, what turned out to be the game-winning score. And if you're looking at the Stars going, what else could you have done? Nothing. They made the right play, which is make them go down the field and go score a touchdown because you're up four in the USFL. That's a two-score ball game. Right, unless you're—I mean, excuse me—that's two. Uh, that is a TD ball game. You got to get into the end zone, meaning you can't settle for three. And getting them into a fourth and eight, you expect to get a stop there. That's not how that went down. I also wrote a feature, well, a feature column following that game, where I got to walk and talk with Skip Holtz about what it has been like for him to help raise Alex Magoo up as a professional quarterback. I encourage you to go read that piece because he revealed some things to me that I didn't know. So I'm sure that most of you might not have known them, but. You should know that Skip Holtz said to me, I trust him explicitly. I think he trusts me. That's a wild thing for an offensive coordinator to say, which is I'm going to ask him what the hell it is that you want to do. And then we're going to call that because it makes me, does me no good to call you something that you don't think is, that you don't think we can run and you are not confident that we can win with. And Magoo is out there absolutely putting people on skates and winning ball games that I thought, Frankly, the Birmingham Stallions should lose. So anyway, number three on the list, we got the Houston Gamblers. They're also five and three like the Memphis Showboats. They beat Pittsburgh 20 to 19 at Pro Football Hall of Fame Stadium. Mark Thompson had another great day, 14 rushes for 98 yards. He extends his all-time USFL rushing TD record to 13 in just eight weeks of play. And they needed it, right? Because Kenji Bahar, quarterback, didn't play as well as we had hoped that he would. But 2019 is not what you want to do against Pittsburgh Maulers. And yet, what you do want to do is win. And that makes them dangerous. Number four, Philadelphia Stars. Again, they lost that game 27-24 to the Birmingham Stallions. But I got to see a lot out of the Philadelphia Stars that I liked. They looked steady. They looked like they understood what the offense is supposed to do, what the defense is supposed to do. And the partnership between Case Cookies and Corey Coleman is paying dividends. I mean, Coleman had 107 receiving yards in that game on four catches. And one of those was just a sluggo where, I mean, he cooked that defensive back's grooks, uh, grits. I'm just, I, I, I look at Corey Coleman and I say, that's a first round draft pick out there. And he is playing like it. I would not be surprised to find out that he does end up on someone's all USFL team. Number five there, we got the New Orleans Breakers. They beat Michigan 24-20 in Birmingham. That's a game I was also at Protective Stadium for. They got a great game out of Johnny Dixon, former Ohio State wide receiver. He caught nine passes for 136 yards with two TDs. He caught both TDs and went for 91 yards in the first half alone. He told me that was the best game that he'd ever played in his life. And I went back to look. He's right, right? He had eight catches for 127 yards and a TD against Northwestern. That's his best game at Ohio State. And this is his best game either in college or in the pros. And he is rightfully the offensive player of the week for the USFL following week eight. Very excited for him. McLeod Bethel Thompson had a great day except twice, right? Say 25-34 for 328. Two of those 
the twice INTs. He stared down who he was passing to. It's not like MBT to do that. But credit to the Michigan Panthers who were taking advantage of it, go down 21 to zero and then fight back. That's why they're number six on my week eight USFL power rankings. You're down 21 nothing with two minutes left to go in the first half. Most teams are going to pack it in, but the, the Panthers decided, no, 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 we ain't going out like that. They gave Josh Love and that offense an opportunity to fight back. Didn't get much out of the run game and Reggie Corbin, but they did get a lot out of the defense. Frank Genda led them with 11 tackles, two for loss and a pick. That's a dude that's always around the football with him and Breland Speaks playing on that defense. You always have an opportunity to get back in the game. Number seven, I got the two and six Pittsburgh Maulers. They lost 2019 in a game where all they needed was to get six in the red zone. The kicker, Chris Blewett, well, Blewett, he hit 53, he hit 54, but he missed on 41 and that was the game. Like, that sucks. It, it really does. Because if you go get six where you're still making him kick for 53 for three, you win that game. So they had a 13-0 lead that went to 21-0 and then gave it up. They also got 20 or 26 passing for 214 out of Troy Williams. And I think anytime you get production from the offense, you can't afford to squander it if you were the Pittsburgh Mullet just because it's been so inconsistent. Number eight, we got the New Jersey Generals, who, of course, lost to the Pittsburgh uh, – excuse me, to uh, – not the Pittsburgh Maulers, to the Memphis Showboats. But I think it's also more worth saying they haven't had a quarterback that passed for over 200 yards all season. They've had three different starters at quarterback, and they are dead last in turnover differential. It's just not like a Mike Riley team to be so poor at holding on to the football and then not to have a quarterback as that guy is an outstanding developer of quarterbacks. Okay, that is going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. My thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak. Our senior producer is Catherine Donnelly. Our director is Gabe Sable. Our production assistant is Kiara Santana. Our social media maven is Javion Duncan. Our lead of screening is Jack Coakley. I'm the host, RJ. We will see y'all on Friday. Doses.